Good evening, church. So far in our current event series, we've discussed politics and race. And since we're already discussing such sensitive topics, I thought it might be the right time for us to discuss sexuality. So over the next few weeks, we will discuss what scripture and specifically what Jesus have to teach us about the purpose, design, and ethics of sexuality. But before we get into the lesson, I wanna say two things. First, because of the subject matter, this Bible study may not be appropriate for younger children. And second, if you have any questions, concerns, or struggles that you'd like to discuss with someone, please don't hesitate to reach out to myself, one of the elders, or one of the ministers here at McDermott Road. Tonight's guest is Wayne Roberts, and in addition to being a minister at the Metro Church of Christ in Oklahoma City, he also travels the country with his wife, Tammy, leading a marriage seminar called His Shoes, Her Shoes. Together, they've helped countless couples better understand one another and understand the beauty of God's design for marriage. Tonight, Wayne will help us see God's design for sexuality. I hope you find this conversation helpful and encouraging. Okay, well, Wayne, thank you so very much for being part of our conversation today. I appreciate not only you taking the time to do this, but I appreciate the work that, that you do there in Oklahoma and that you and your wife, Tammy, do uh, throughout the country. Thank you for your work, brother. Thank you, I appreciate the opportunity to be part of it. Okay, so my first question is, is really, how would you describe a uniquely Christian view of sexuality? Obviously, Christians do and should have a different view of sexuality than the world does. But if you had to define what should the Christian view of sexuality, the uniquely Christian view of sexuality, how would you define that? But, you know, when we talk about sexuality, we, you know, we talk about everything from gender to sexual expression to orientation. So it's, it's a pretty broad stroke. So my answer may be a little broad in that regard. But I think one of the things that comes to mind right off the bat has to do with, with kind of the, the origin or the very nature of sexuality, either from a Christian or might, we might say biblical perspective versus the world. And that is simply that when we look at, as we should, that sexuality is part of God's design, right? God says, let us make man in our own image. And then he identifies of all the things. We don't know what color Adam and Eve's hair are. We don't know if they're tall, they're short. Uh, we don't know much about them, but God decides to define them as, and he creates them male and female. So we have sexuality in the very opening pages of, of the creation story and of scripture. And so for me, I think it shows great value that God has given us this, that it is not a matter of happenstance, that it's not something that just, uh, uh, that just was a, a mutation or part of an evolutionary process. In fact, a relatively new work by a guy by the name of F. Lagarde Smith, he points to the fact that the evolutionary model struggles with explaining sexuality. Where did this happen that these things that had kind of this... Uh, this reproduction of selfie, you know, I, I can't ever remember mitosis, meiosis, all those kind of things, but the idea that it replicates itself, sexuality isn't consistent with that. And so here's what happens is when we don't have that view, and maybe this is the backside of your question, and that is when we don't view it as anything more than the extension of that evolutionary process of happenstance of something that is purely has its origin or its nature out of the flesh, I think it's devalued. And so we see it becoming a casual endeavor, something that is easily used and abused, discarded, and it oftentimes 
uh, goes without any firm definition because without that male and female, without that intent, that nature, that purpose, we find that, well, it's open to everybody's interpretation. And when there is no clear definition of these things, well, as we've already seen, right, it causes all kinds of, of problems. I mean, we just, we're, we're in a constant state of flux, in fact, an ever-changing state of flux without that kind of uh, standard. I, I think it goes maybe a little bit even beyond that, and that is the purpose of it, right? Because most of the time, it is a very uh, self-focused, self-interested perspective, right? It's, it's my body, it's my desire, it's my pleasure, and, and really reproduction and sexuality and uh, and even the extension of that intimacy has so much more to do with something, someone else, right? And I think that gets lost in all of that. We talk about, uh, you know, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, uh, specifically those who are believers. He says, your body's not your own. You've been bought with a price, right? So honor or glorify God in that. And he, he laps right over into the next chapter, reminding husbands and wives, listen, you weren't created the way you were created just to be a benefit to you. You're a benefit to the other. In fact, you should be and don't hold back that benefit, that blessing that God's given. So I think that aspect of self versus selflessness is fundamentally part of or should be part of a Christian's perspective. And if we extend that all the way out, it's that idea of we recognize our life purpose in general to bring glory to God. I mean, I think we've got lots of purposes, lots of things that we do. We want to be good citizens. We want to be healthy. You know, we want our children uh, to be happy and even want to be holy. But ultimately, it's about bringing glory to God. And as I describe in our seminar, sometimes you don't get to have this little piece of cake of sexuality that's for you. But your life purpose is all about God. So what we try to do is say, uh, the idea of sex and sexuality needs to be consistent with our life purpose to bring glory to God. And, and there is no glorification of God in disobedience or disregard for, you know, his perspective. So I think that really it, it means that we see or should see as Christians, sex and sexuality as far more important, far more beautiful, far more satisfying than any model that the world creates in regards to how it views it or how it views it today or how it's viewed it in the in the past. Yeah, I think that is incredibly well said. And I and I think it segues really well to the next question in the idea that you talked about that sexuality, just like every area of our life, is intended to bring glory to God, but we've all fallen short of that goal, right? I mean, we've all fallen short of that goal, right. whether it, it be in the realm of sexuality or in any other realm, we've all fallen short of the goal of bringing glory to God with our life and with everything that we do. So the church has to be a place where people can find acceptance and a place where they can find grace, a place where they can find forgiveness and mercy. Um, but it also has to be a place that maintains and upholds exactly what you were talking about, that high view and that high standard of sexual ethics. So if you would speak to that for a second, how can the church be a place that, that people can find grace and mercy and forgiveness, but also a place that maintains that high view and high standard of sexual ethics? Well, 
I'll, I'll take a kind of a half step back from what we do and look at what we have done. It is unfortunate that the church has been so quiet on the subject of sexuality uh, that it has been taboo. And I understand that some of that came out of just a, a different a different generation, a different culture in which some of those very personal things weren't talked about uh, at all. But we've always been vocal in regards to our uh, our opposition to the attacks on sexuality, right? I mean, whether it's it's gender identity or sexual orientation or promiscuity, immorality, we've been very vocal against it. And, and I fear that perhaps maybe we haven't been very vocal in our, in our honoring of it and how valuable and beautiful it is and, and encouraging young, and, young men and young women, we've really defaulted to a world's view, which is kind of sex is dirty. I mean, it's, it's kind of a naughty thing. And it, it, if it's fully expressed, it's in back alleys or darkened theaters or now on that dark, you know, that dark chasm of the internet. And so I think we need to start by really talking openly. We can be, I think we can be frank without being uh, vulgar or inappropriate to say, this is a wonderful, beautiful thing. And I, I think that makes us then a desirable place for those who, who I think admittedly are confused in what the world has offered. Young men, young women confused about the feelings they have, the, the perspective on things and going, I don't have an answer. So I kind of go to the smorgasbord or the buffet of the world to look for an answer. And it's kind of like when I used to go to the buffet as a kid, we passed all the good stuff and went straight for dessert, right? I mean, it was just, I wanted pie and we got pie that day. And, and I think that's what happens as opposed to the, them going, you know, Christians have a real healthy view of sexuality. It's not something that is naughty or nasty or something that's never talked about. So I think that's really valuable for us to be and set ourselves up as the place that those who are confused want to come. And then, then there is a little bit of a balancing act. I, I'm reminded of the balancing act in, uh, in Corinth, right? We have 1 Corinthians is written to a church that has, well, they just have the full laundry list of problems and amongst them, is sexuality that Paul identifies as that which would make even, you know, the Gentiles blush at that's going on. There's a young man, uh, without getting too deep into the context, a young man who is engaged in what seems to be an intimate relationship with his stepmother. And, and Paul cautions the church about just kind of getting comfortable with something that they should be uncomfortable with. And, and the, his words are pretty harsh to them. I mean, he says, listen, for the sake of the whole, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, for the sake of the whole, he said, you need to put this young man out from your midst. I, I assume that would mean if he's unwilling to stop. You know, in other words, it's not just about punishment, it's more about discipline uh, than it is just a consequence for his behavior. He says, man, you just can't let this go on because eventually it will pollute the whole church. If you don't have a, a standard about this, you won't have a standard about anything. And then just a few months later, he writes back to them. And sometimes I think we always teach the first Corinthians story, but we never teach the second Corinthians story, right? Now we got a young man that comes back, apparently has, has stopped, has repented, has corrected this life. And Paul says, time for the discipline to stop. It's time for now that the, 
objective of discipline has been reached, which is his return to a relationship with Jesus and thus a relationship to you as he severed this other relationship. This is a good thing. Don't keep pouring it on. We don't want him to be overtaken in what Paul calls sorrow, or at least one translation describes as sorrow. He says, you need to be forgiving. You need to be loving. You need to be caring. And so I think it, I think it demands that maybe we assess, are we talking about our response to one who's a believer, one who's a supposed follower of Jesus? Uh, it might be overgeneralizing it to say one who knows truly better than what they're doing. I think there's a place for instruction and there's a place for discipline as a result of that, that they might return to the thing that they know to be correct. I think, however, when we talk to those who are in our world, whether you want to call them the unbelievers, the non-believers, those that have never had that real relationship with Jesus, I think probably it's a little bit different of approach. And unfortunately, we have made our objective to, to, uh, to get the homosexual to not be a homosexual or the promiscuous young lady not to be promiscuous or the immoral. And I just identify those as some of those battlefields or battlegrounds to stop that when really we've kind of got the cart before the horse. A relationship with Jesus is what's going to empower them to deal with those situations. And we feel that, well, maybe we need to make them perfect before Jesus is willing to do his work with them. And so I think we have to maybe take the model of Paul to Timothy, which is, you know, there's some places for reproving and correcting and instructing, but do so with great patience, right? Because we are, well, we're very patient with our own sin. Now I'm struggling. I'm working through that. God's not finished with me yet. And then with a long judgmental finger, we point at those in the world and, and demand even of those that aren't in a relationship with Jesus Christ, an immediate turnaround. You're right. In fact, an immediate turnaround before a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so our gospel becomes a don't, 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 don't kind of thing. And they never find out about the thing that will make the difference in their life. And I think it becomes the standard for them as far as what, what their end objective is. You know, tell a young man and a young woman, listen, don't do this. That's what they hear. They don't understand. Oh, we may throw in about something that's going to happen down the road when they get married and all the beautiful things, but that's not typically. It's this long list of don'ts. But the why that don't matters is not about you don't want an unwanted pregnancy. You don't want all these burdens when you finally do get married. You don't want to be, you know, unable to wear white at your wedding. It, it has to do with this grander life purpose a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that I think may have been understated, this relational aspect. If you think about sexuality, it is about relations. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about. Even our word intercourse carries the, the idea of a, a back and forth communication, right? It's a relational model. It's not just a one-time event. And when God looks at it, he even use it, uses it metaphorically of his relationship with his people. I find it interesting that it's almost as if he says, you know the way it should be between a husband and a wife, but you're not that way when it comes to me, whether it is as your husband or as your father. And so 
in the absence of that, I think we really struggle to convince and ultimately convert individuals to a new way of life because it doesn't matter, right? Tell the prostitute on the street corner, you know, you're going to die and go to hell. And she goes, probably, right? I mean, she knows that her life's a wreck. Instead of getting her to run away from something, we need to really lay something out that is, um, that is to run, that is run to. And, and then probably, and I just kind of, it's the icing on the cake and we mentioned already, and that is this idea of forgiveness. I, I you know, we need to, we need to truly embrace forgiveness for others and for ourselves. We need to, as Paul says, you know, we need to remember that as they are, so were some of us. You know, there's not a one of us that stands with, a, with an empty ledger or clean ledger and says, you know, God, I'm really good at noticing what's right and wrong and doing what I need to do. In fact, the Jews fell victim to that. He says, well, let's check the ledger, you know, a little closer, right? And so for me is, I think we need to, to have that perspective of our own past, right? And our own present struggles and what God wants for us in the future is not just a relationship with brothers and sisters or with a local congregation or with a set of values or even doctrines. It wants a relationship with him. And that's what we want to move people to, not just away from something else. So I think forgiveness has to be ever present and forgiveness never, right? I mean, Jesus dealing with a, a woman caught in the very act of adultery, he asks who condemns you? And she says, none of them. And he goes, neither do I, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, what? Well, then go and sin no more. Lesson learned. You've seen that. I mean, you know the error of your ways. I'm going to show you forgiveness because in that is that great lesson of God. So it, it's a careful balance, as I often say to, to young men and young women, be caring and be careful. That's, I mean, I think that's just kind of my motto for dealing with those things as we encounter them. That's really good. That's really good. So as we wrap up, what advice would you have? Because I love the way you've laid this out in a very positive way where it's not just don't do these things. And there obviously are a lot of things that as Christians with the sexual ethic that we find in scripture that you don't do these things, but there are also positives and this conversation should be couched in very positive terms. And I love the way you've done exactly that. So what advice would you have to Christians about both guarding and exercising their spiritual or their sexuality in a way that brings glory to God. You, you may have answered the question in asking it, and the very tail end of that has to do with this idea of bringing glory to God. I, I, I grew up in the church. My father, my grandfather were preachers. I went to all of church, even Wednesday night church. I mean, I, I, I was churched to death. I knew all the rights and all the wrongs, uh, whether I practiced them, that's for a different, you know, different time. But the idea was this, it wasn't about just the academics of it. It wasn't just knowing the right and wrong. And, and I fear, or I feel, and it's my perspective and maybe others have been different is that I, I really, I was not given this idea of, relationship with Jesus as being the driving force. It was sin is dirt, uh, sex is dirty, or sex is fulfilling, but not quite as fulfilling until you're married, or there isn't any satisfaction, or there's tons of danger to all of that. 
instead of this idea of a much grander relationship. And, and that's not just limited to sexuality. That's in all of these things, all of these things that, you know, I'll just tell you right now, I think more people are forgiving of gossips than they are of an individual that is promiscuous. And the gossip is probably doing far more damage, at least in a broad sense, than is that one's individual uh, individual sin. But it's kind of falls in the, you know, the big little sin kind of category. And so these are just kind of, these are a couple of things or three things that I think. Number one is um, sexuality is first and foremost a heart thing. And if we try to change behavior without changing or affecting the heart, I think we're going to fail. Because if we're going to give in merely to the physicality of it, well, it's going to be that angel and devil on the shoulder, both which look like us. And us is typically who gets us uh, into problems. And so instead, we need to be developing not just do it, don't do it, but this, this why. I mean, when Jesus talks about you know, lust, he talks about it from the perspective of, listen, man, it's in the heart. It's already occurring there. Uh, and I'm not going to, I'm not really seeking to address those that say, listen, I have this sexual orientation. I go, well, that's not really the sin acting on it is, but there is something about the heart, about the inner person. What is that inner person looking for and striving for and becoming, and ultimately with the power of Jesus being transformed. So I think that's the place to really start is at the heart. The second is, and it's kind of about those little guys on your shoulder. And that is, we have made a huge mistake, in my opinion, relying on self-control. Now, I think that there's a place to be self-disciplined, and there's some things to say. For example, I think it is wise not to put yourself in potentially compromising sexual situations. A preacher who counsels out of nothing but the best intent in the privacy of his office with a young woman, or for that matter, an old woman, and finds himself compromised, never intending, because he just wasn't wise enough, didn't use enough wisdom. A young man, a young woman left for long periods of time, well into the nighttime with their hormones raging and there's no one there to keep them. Those are not, those are not wise choices. And by the way, I don't think you fix that just by saying double date. I've seen double dating situations that aren't a whole lot better. I, it's a matter of allowing God to form and shape a discipline for us. Think of God's word, I appreciate what, in fact, I, I thought about it this way, then I heard another uh, teacher speak of it this way, and that is that God's word is these guardrails that are put in zones of safety, saying beyond that is danger. They don't put the guardrail at the bottom of the ditch, right? It's not, about, it's a matter of saying, listen, live between the guardrails is, is a guide, and it is a safety, it's warning, Things are better in the guardrails. And so instead of being God's about no, 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 God's about yes, 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 but doing so maybe with the seat belt, uh, seat belt buckled and lights at the intersection so that they're not just stoplights, they're go lights that allow everybody to go. So I think it's important that instead of saying, you know, just, just gut it out, you know, just put your intestinal fortitude to it, be self-disciplined. My experience is self-discipline almost always fails me, right? Because even the Apostle Paul, the very thing I want to do is the very thing I don't do. And the very thing I don't want to do seems to be the very thing I do. 
who will save me? It's that 25th verse of that seventh chapter that is the hope, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, right? That's the answer. And then finally, and I've already kind of touched on it, and so I won't, I won't embellish it too much more. And that is this idea of embracing forgiveness because mistakes will be made. We're going to struggle with things. Our world is not helping us, and we're kind of surprised that our world isn't advocating the things that God does, but that's kind of what makes it, quote unquote, the world, right? So the world is going to pull people into sin. It has through every generation. It did from Adam and Eve, right? The tempted of the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the, the glory or vainglory of life. So we shouldn't be surprised. We should be prepared to, to instruct and to care for and to forgive if for no other reason than because God forgave us in our sin, whatever it was, whether known or not, or big sin or little sin. Forgiveness is, uh, is the real hope we have beyond all of our current struggle. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you, brother. This has been so theologically rich, but also practical. So I appreciate it so very much, brother. Thank you. Thank you. I thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And God bless to all of you down there at McDermott Road and, and uh, your work you're doing there. Thanks, brother. I so appreciate Wayne's thoughts and perspective on all of the things that he shared with us. And I want to end tonight by looking at a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, because Paul is dealing with sexual ethics. He's helping Christians to understand how they should behave sexually. And again, just as Wayne pointed out tonight, that it's not just about what we don't do. It's also about what we do. It's not just about the thou shalt nots. It's also about thou shalt. It's about the positives as well as the negatives. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now take note of the way the English Standard Version puts quotation marks around the phrase, all things are lawful for me, as if Paul is quoting what some people in Corinth are saying, and then he responds to that quote by saying, but not all things are helpful. And then he quotes again, all things are lawful for me, and then he responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. So apparently there were some in Corinth that were arguing in favor of their sexual immorality by saying, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I'm not under the law of Moses, and so I can do these things that I want to do. And Paul would argue back, not from the law specifically, but Paul would argue back and say, even if that was true, even if it was true that you're not bound by the law or that all things were lawful, even if that was true, and I don't think he's conceding that point, but he's saying, even if that were true, not all things are helpful. Just because there's not a law against it, even if that were true, which there was a law against it, and the Gentile Christians were even taught to follow what the law of Moses said about sexual ethics. But Paul says, even if that was true, even if all things were lawful, not all things are helpful. Not all behavior is good. 
And I think we have to acknowledge that first and foremost, that even if there wasn't a law against whatever it is that you want to do, and that's what we tend to do, isn't it? Is we try to draw a line in the sand and get as close to it as we can without stepping over. And we say, well, this isn't wrong, or who are you to say what's right and wrong, or here's the line, and I haven't really crossed the line. And Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Just because, and even if, all things were lawful, which that's not true, but even if all things were lawful, it still wouldn't follow that all things were helpful. And then he, he quotes that argument again, all things are lawful. And then he offers another argument against that and says, but I will not be dominated by anything. See, here's the lie. Here's the lie of the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution that says, I want to be free. I want to be free to express my sexuality and to experience whatever it is that I desire to experience. The lie is that you can experience that type of freedom because it's not actually freedom. Paul says when you behave that way, when you indulge your sexual immorality, when you indulge your desires, then you are dominated by your desires. You're actually enslaved to your desires. You're doing what you feel like doing, and therefore your desires, your passions are ruling over you. You're dominated by them. You are enslaved to them. And Paul says, as an argument against all things are lawful, he says, okay, you're saying all things are lawful, but here's my second response to that, is that I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be enslaved to anything, including my own desires. And I just want us to think about that for a second because we all have all kinds of different and even conflicting desires. One day we want this and the next day we want something different. One day we want something that's helpful for us and the next day we want something that's hurtful to us. One day we want to do something that's healthy and the next day we want to do something that's destructive. And if we just indulge whatever desire we have, if that's what's guiding our life is our own passions and our own desires, then we've actually become enslaved to our own passions. We've become enslaved to our own desires. We've become dominated by our desires. And so Paul essentially says, even if that was true, that all things are lawful, you're still being enslaved and dominated by your desires. Look at verse 13, this time from the New International Version. He says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And I love the way the NIV puts the quotes around that whole phrase, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, this is the second argument that some people in Corinth are making. They're saying, listen, I mean, sex is like food. Your body desires food, and so you eat. Your body desires sex, and so you have sex. And so the argument is, it's just natural. And, and then it's followed by the argument that God's going to destroy them both, that the body is disposable. And Paul is pushing back against that, and he's arguing against that mentality. And church, we have to be careful here too, don't we? Because there's a lot of us who treat our bodies like they're temporary. We treat our bodies as if they're disposable. And that mentality, that worldview about the body 
that treats the body as if it's something unimportant, that treats the body as if it's just something that, you know, it has its wants, it has its desires, and I, I give the body what it wants, I give the body what it desires, but it's just temporary, and we're going to do away with it, and God's going to destroy it. That's not a Christian view of the body. And because we don't have a Christian view of the body, it affects a lot of ethical questions. It affects how we think about, last month we talked about race. It affects how we think about race and ethnicity. It affects how we think about how we treat our neighbors. It affects things like how we think about abortion. The Bible teaches us that the body, the human body, is significant and beyond significant. It's sacred. And how we treat the body and what we do with the body and how we use our body is significant. Paul says to the argument that God's just going to destroy the body anyway, he says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Did you hear that? He says that your body is designed to be used for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. The Lord has a vested interest in your body. And think about that for a second because that's huge. The Lord has a vested interest, not just in your spirit. That's Neoplatonism. That, that's, that's a Greek philosophy idea that God just cares about your spirit. God just cares about your invisible self. The biblical truth is that Jesus has, God has a vested interest in your body. He says, the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Look at verse 14, this time back in the English Standard Version. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, has he changed topics here? Now, why all of a sudden is he talking about resurrection? Why is he talking about resurrection when he was just talking about sexual immorality? Because that's his argument against sexual immorality that just as God raised the Lord's body, he's going to raise our body. Your body is going to be transformed. This body, this body of West someday is going to die. It's going to be buried, but then it's going to be raised. This body is going to be raised and it's going to be transformed into a spiritual, and by spiritual, Paul doesn't mean in 1 Corinthians 15, non-physical, it's still going to be a body but it's going to be transformed so that it's immortal and imperishable. And he says, just as God raised the Lord, just as he raised Jesus, he's going to raise us up by his power. And by his power, he's going to transform this body. And this is all an argument against sexual immorality. It all goes against this philosophy that says, listen, Sex is natural. Sex is just a desire and it's just like eating food and I get hungry and so I eat and I have this desire so I fulfill it. And it doesn't really matter because it's just my body and my body is just temporary and my body is disposable. And so we treat our body as if it's unimportant, as if it's temporary, as if it's disposable. And Paul says that's not in harmony with the gospel, that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, it it isn't just your spirit that is connected with Christ. It isn't just your spirit that matters to Christ, that when you become one spirit with Christ, he says, verse 15, again, that your bodies, your bodies are members of Christ. And think about that for a second, because the profound nature of this can't be understated, that your hands and your feet and your eyes And your mouth and every body part that you have have become members of the Messiah. They've become part of the Messiah's collective body. Your body has. It isn't just your spirit that's connected to Jesus and to to his church, to his people. It's your entire self, your entire body. And he says, when you unite yourself with a prostitute, When you commit sexual immorality with your body, it's as if you're uniting the body of Christ with a prostitute. He says, is that okay? By no means. This this is not okay. This is not right because your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. Your body is sacred. Not only because you're an image bearer of God, but but beyond that, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your body has become, your body has become a member of Christ. Verse 15. So he says, because all of this is true, here's the application. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Do you see that word? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When you sin sexually, you sin against something that is sacred, your body. Your body isn't something disposable. Your body isn't something unimportant. Your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. Your body has been connected to and has become a member of Christ. And so it belongs to the Lord. And when you sin sexually, you sin against this sacred body that belongs to the Lord. And then he says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When, when you become a Christian, when you go down into the water of baptism, not only are you connected with Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, but you receive, you receive a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now just, again, think about the profundity of that idea. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Imagine what it would have been like to go into the temple of Jerusalem. How overwhelmed you would be with the majesty, with the glory of it all. How much you would realize this is a special place. This is a sacred place. And the Corinthian people, the Greek people, understood that when you 
you went into an idol's temple that 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 for the people that worship that uh, that idol that god that was a sacred place and paul tells the corinthian christians that the one true god has decided no longer to take up residence in a brick and mortar temple but to take up residence in your body so that glory and majesty that used to belong to a physical building now belongs to your physical body, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that what you do with your body matters, and that if you sin sexually, it's like defiling the temple. I don't know if you've ever been to a special place. Maybe you've been to a a battlefield where a great battle was fought, or maybe you've been to a, a big important building where something significant has happened, or you've been to some monument where something special and spectacular and history changing has happened, and you you kind of feel like this is a this is a sacred spot, this is a special spot, and what I do here matters. And if you've been to New York City after the the towers came down, and you've stood there at the 9/11 memorial in those great big holes where the water is flowing forever into those holes, all of the names of the people that are written around the outside. And you think, what we do here, it matters. When, when I went there with my wife and kids, we, we had the boys, you know, don't, don't play, don't run around, don't, don't mess with things, don't yell and scream. This is a special spot. Paul wants you to understand, he wants me to understand that we've been given a spectacular gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and our bodies have taken on the vocation of being the temple of God. And while you wouldn't ever dream of doing something that would defile a special place, Paul says that special place is you. It's your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you sin sexually, and by sin sexually, all through Scripture, it's anything besides the, the married sexual union of a husband and wife and anything outside of that, it defiles this spectacularly special and sacred object, this sacred place that is your body. And do we see how that's not just negative? It's not just don't do these things. It's positive. It's to say your body has taken on a brand new vocation to bring glory to God. Your body is meant to reflect God's glory. If you had gone to a temple and it was a big, majestic, wonderful temple, you'd say, wow, this God is something special and and people must really love and be devoted to this God because the glory of his temple is is majestic and and it's great. And likewise, if you went to a a shabby little temple that was just kind of sticks and, you know, just barely standing up, you'd say, well, this is kind of a shabby temple. This must not be much of a God or the people that worship this God must not be very devoted to him. The, The temple itself would reflect something of that God's glory. And Paul says, that's what your body is intended to do. And nobody forced you to become a Christian. You chose to become a Christian. And when you and I chose to become a Christian, when we chose to go down into that water of baptism, not only only were we signing up to have our sins forgiven, but we were signing up to be little temples of God, 
so that we glorify God with our body. And this is, this is the amazing, unbelievable thing that of all the places that God could take up residence, he chose your body. And Paul says that must affect the way you use your body. So I want to end tonight with the way that Paul ends that section by simply saying, glorify God in your body. And again, that's not just negative, don't do these things. It's positive to say everything for which we use our body has the potential to reflect how good and how awesome and how wonderful and how majestic God is. And and likewise, we also have the ability to bring dishonor and shame on God by the way we use our body. And if this body belongs to the Lord, and if this body is the Lord's temple, and if the purpose of this body is to bring glory to God, then God gets to set the standard for how it's used. God gets to set the standard for what brings him glory and what doesn't. My desires cannot be the benchmark of what brings God glory. My feelings can't be the benchmark of what brings God glory. My feelings can't be my my ethical, moral compass for what brings glory to God. Jesus and the scriptures have to be where I derive my sexual ethic because my sexual ethic matters, because my body matters. Your body matters. Your body, if you are a follower of Jesus, then your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So this is the way we swim against the cultural currents of our time. This is the way the Christians in the first century swam against the cultural currents of their time is to glorify God in your body. That's the gift, that's the task, that's the vocation that we've been given, is to glorify God in our body.